Hello there, my warrior friends. Welcome to Caregivers Conversations. I'm your host, Leanne McKinley, and an unpaid caregiver just like you. In this podcast, we discuss the truths behind the daily struggles of the unpaid and untrained caregiver. Fasten your seatbelts because you're about to hear raw, edgy, and real-life conversations with like-minded caregivers and industry experts whose missions align with mine, which is to change the way we all experience caregiving. In this community, I aim to inject your life with practical tips, tools, and techniques that will leave you feeling energized and uplifted. Are you ready to get inspired and to change the way you experience caregiving? If so, buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode two. If you're tuned in again and you've listened to episode one, thank you so much for listening to part of my story. I don't want to tell you my life story so I can play in victimhood because that's not who I am or what I'm about. And I definitely don't want to wallow there. But I think it's really important that you understand who I am and what I've been through so you can get a sense of why I'm here and where we're going. And that journey that I went through and how it led to my utter compassion fatigue and exhaustion. And sometimes, yeah, I'm going to talk about the systems that are here to support us, that they're so archaic. And as a business coach, who coaches around communication and systems, some of them are so outdated. They wouldn't survive if they were not non-for-profits today and they were new startup companies. I think people have a higher expectation now. And so it's not to be mean, it's just, you know, the people that are working within the support systems that are, you know, providing respite and all these services that are here to supposedly and do the best they can to help us. Some of them are very outdated and out of tune and out of touch with what we actually go through. And so I'm telling you my story because it's not uncommon that we deal with compassion fatigue, apathy, lack of compassion and resentment towards our loved ones for all the suffering and the lack of support from the system, the legal system, the respite systems, the medical systems, the legal systems that you may have to navigate through as you care for your loved one. It's just appalling. I mean, my dad has two types of dementia, and I know we're in a lockdown with the pandemic, but I had to go for some tests that I've been waiting for for a couple of years, and they made me leave my dad out in the car. You would never ask me to leave a two-year-old out in the car alone. That would be considered negligent, but that was what was expected of me. So there's so little understanding, and this isn't just a channel for people caring for those with dementia, but it's a large group of us here that will be coming to listen. And so one of the things I want to bring to light is to really be able to recognize the elderly as being vulnerable, whether they have dementia or not. As we age, our brains deteriorate and to be treated in the way that they need to be treated for the structures and systems to do a better job of supporting us, that they're out of touch with some of their recommendations. So I'm digressing a little bit, but the reason it's important is because I was exhausted and suffering from compassion fatigue from the journey that I had to go through, which we'll dive into shortly. And I believe a lot of the people that are running the systems and the organizations and the structures that are here to support us are also suffering from compassion fatigue. Because I know firsthand, because my daughter 
oldest daughter runs the ER department of the Children's Hospital here in the capital of Canada. She's on maternity leave right now, but she's written five papers about compassion fatigue in the medical industry because it's a problem. And compassion fatigue is defined as secondary trauma through the absorption of the energy of the loved one that you're caring for or the clients that you care for if you're in nursing or a doctor or a paramedic or a first-line responder or a veterinarian or a therapist. I mean, compassion fatigue has been written about in all those industries, but it's never been discussed amongst the unpaid, untrained caregivers, collectives here that I am speaking to, the 101 million of us. And so that's the book proposal that I submitted. I said two weeks ago in episode one, it was actually almost a month ago now to Hay House. Time flies when you're in a mode of talking and not paying attention and I'm just in flow. So I apologize. I did make a couple of clerical errors that I'll clarify for you now in episode two. So in episode one, I said two weeks ago, I'd submitted my proposal. It was actually, I think, September 21st. So almost three weeks ago, a month ago now, almost a month ago now to Hay House on a book to help us unpaid, untrained caregivers overcome compassion fatigue because it's a problem, a real, real, real problem that nobody is doing anything about. Just to show you the extent of the problem, I, if you're Canadian, a couple of months ago, three maybe so months ago now, a PSW who was representative for the social media campaigns for all PSWs in Canada, by the way, made fun of a dementia patient she was taking care of in a TikTok video, and it went viral. And it was not well received in the media. She had no compassion. She lost the compassion for the person she was caring for and was making fun of this elderly person. And that made me sad and angry. Really think as a society, we need to start changing the way we view the elderly and showing them more grace and dignity, grace and dignity that they deserve. And the reason is so important because in my proposal to Hay House that I submitted, I think it was September 21st, I'm almost sure. I asked them, as I'm going to ask you now, if a paid, trained caregiver, and again, I don't say this to dish all the caregivers out there that are paid or trained. My daughter, as I said, is a nurse. I get the plight. I understand the shortage of staff and the medical system just being overtaxed and overburdened. I absolutely empathize and get that. My point here is, if you're getting paid, this is the job and the career you chose. You're not alone in your shift. You've got staff that support you. You get breaks, well, barely from what my daughter says, but you go home at night at least. If you, those caregivers who were trained, are exemplifying compassion fatigue, if the support staff in these systems and organizations that I talk about that are so out of touch and show very little compassion for us caregivers and their expectations of what we can and cannot cope with, are so out of touch and show very little compassion for our exhaustion, how the heck are we supposed to cope? With all due respect, Mr. Biden and Mr. Trudeau, how are we who were unprepared and untrained for this role, 24-7, often caring for the loved one by ourselves with fighting amongst family members, how the heck are we supposed to cope? And that's why I'm here. So I'm going to go into my story a little bit. If you're not interested in my personal journey, then please wait an episode or two until I start to interview some guests. 
And if you are interested in my personal journey, again, it's not to be victim, a bit victim or to wallow in pity. It's really just so you can see what I've been through and why I'm here and why this is so bloody important to me and to all of us. Not just my journey, but the general challenges that I've faced that you've all faced and how to raise awareness that we need to become advocates and raise awareness about what it's really like and not suffer in silence anymore. So I'll just start with correcting the other error that I made, two clerical errors in episode one. I must have been a Freudian slip. I said that my sister was divorcing my brother, haha, <laughs> my ex-brother-in-law. At the same time, my mother decided to leave my father. I've never had an affinity for him, so it must have been a Freudian slip, but it wasn't my sister divorcing my brother. It was my ex-brother-in-law. And that happened at the same time my mom left my father. And the other mistake that I made was I was a day off on Father's Day when I said it was September 16th, 2018. It was actually 17th, June 17th, 2018. So it was off by a day. So I'll just make those corrections and we're going to move on to now. I'm going to explain to you why I was so angry, so resentful, so bitter with the role that I found myself cast in that I didn't prepare for, I didn't train for, like I needed like a bloody hole in the head. (laughs) And why some of my anger has been directed at some of these organizations at times who just don't get it. And I say this as a business coach who runs teams and systems and communications amongst teams, they have a lot of work to do. I mean, the whole healthcare system is so, so old, outdated, outmoded. Probably as a startup company today wouldn't get very far because people's, I believe, expectations are changing. Whatever religious background you have, I really, I don't care. We're all in this together. It's not important to me. All it takes is two eyes and two ears and some semblance of intuition to just sit still for a minute and look around and see that the world has changed forever. And we're not likely going to go back to the way it was in many, many ways. And people have an expectation, I believe, where we're starting to hold other people up to higher standards. And I also believe that that means holding ourselves up to higher standards, which is also something we'll talk about. That means being real and raw about how the system needs to change while at the same time leaning into the reality that it may never change the way we truly need it to. So we got to take responsibility for ourselves, for our own mental state, for how we're coping, for how we're dealing with this role. Because if we rely on someone else to save us, we're going to be sadly mistaken and possibly quite sick, quite ill. So let's go backwards, if you will. And if you're not interested in my story now, please, you feel free to tune out and tune in again in a couple weeks. But for those of you that want to know my Harry Carey story that could play out like a fictional book, unfortunately, it was a true story and still is a true story. Just be prepared to be entertained a little bit <laughs> for the next little bit, for this next 20 minutes, 18 minutes or so, and then into next episode three, and then I'll be done with my story. Hopefully those of you that have stayed on and have listened will get me why I'm here and why I feel like this is also relevant to my life journey and how I can serve you. So let's get started. I think I said last episode, I left off with receiving a text from my father who I had been estranged from 
on Father's Day of 2018 with this sarcastic text wishing me happy Father's Day. And something had told me in my spidey sense to answer the text. Really had walked away from this dysfunctional family and was doing the best I could to heal and quite literally was sick in bed with lupus and I couldn't cope with any of their crap anymore, to be brutally honest. And it was a self-preservation mode that I was in. And yet something was telling me to answer the text. I actually thought about it for a little while. I didn't answer it right away, but uh, I ended up answering the text and talking to my dad on the phone. And up until that point, like I said, I had had no contact with him for several years and I'd only learned through a Christmas visit at my mom and sister's house. They were hosting a Christmas dinner for the my mom's side of the family. Then I wanted to see my extended family members, but I'd only heard through that event that my dad was living in Florida on his own on a work visa. He'd always wanted to retire there and he and my mom had been traveling there for their winters for you know, 15 years up until that point. And uh, that he was there on a work visa and he was dating a much younger woman and he was really happy and he had hidden and stolen all the money that she felt was 50% hers in their divorce. That's all I knew. So I got this text. I, I got to backtrack though. I got to backtrack because I had been hearing rumors not so favorable about his lavish expenditures with this girl and... It was very traumatic for my daughters because this young woman was about their age, his granddaughter's age. And so there's a lot of resentment brewing within my immediate family with my two daughters about his behavior. Nobody really knew, at least I didn't know that anybody knew that he had dementia at that point in time. So I decide to talk to him on this Father's Day and he says he's really happy and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So we slowly start to rekindle our relationship, talking on the phone. I go down to Florida and visit him a couple times. But before I do that, (laughs) this is June 17th, 2018. I don't even know that he is in Ottawa, where I live, dealing with his defense, his own attorney. He was a retired, he's a retired attorney, representing himself in his divorce to my mother. So this is June. So we talk on the phone a couple times. Fast forward to the August long weekend in Canada, the Monday, a couple months later. So like six weeks later, the very beginning of August, 2018, I think it might've been the 6th of August. And I get this sesh, this call that I need to take him to the hospital. And if you know my dad, he didn't do doctors (laughs) at all. So when I get this call to take him to the the hospital, I listened. And this is, you know, where I find out that he's been living around the corner from me part time, you know, coming into Canada from Florida to represent himself in court for his divorce. So, yeah, it was August 6, 2018. It was a holiday Monday. And my dad is this pretty serious alcoholic. I think I mentioned in the last episode and forgot it was a holiday in Canada. So he runs out of alcohol. Not that I knew that at the time, but by the time I get him to the ER, he was in pretty rough shape. They assessed it as detox, serious detox, withdrawal from alcohol pretty quickly. And the ER doctor points to his balding head with salt and pepper hair on the side and says, I've been doing this a long time and I've never seen this level of serious alcohol withdrawals because it was a national holiday. And in Canada, you just can't go into the grocery store and buy booze like you can in the United States. You got to go into the liquor store and they're closed on national holidays. 
and that he wouldn't be attending his emergency court hearing the next day to my mother, and they'd have to run some tests to see if he'd suffered brain damage, a stroke, heart attack. Wasn't in good shape, and he was lucky that he didn't die. And in fact, had I probably picked him up, maybe even just a couple of months later, probably wouldn't have made it. That's how serious it was. So from the hospital room, the first time I've seen my dad <laughs> at that moment in years, we email his attorney, even though he's representing himself in court, he has an attorney who was his articling student many years ago. My mom's attorney, the medical letters to say that he wouldn't be attending court himself, that he was not fit to make decisions, that more testing was needed to see if he suffered a stroke or brain damage, and that I was his power of attorney. And uh, I actually called my mom as well to say he's not going to be able to attend an emergency hearing tomorrow. And quote, unquote, excuse my language, I was met with, why didn't you effing, and she didn't say effing, she said the full word, let him die on the floor and hung up on me. So he's in the hospital. I attend emergency court the next day. They don't show up. I attend emergency court the next day. They don't show up. I attend emergency court the next day. My mom and her lawyer, yet again, don't show up. I finally emailed the clerk and said, they're the ones that wanted this darn emergency hearing before he went back to Florida. They were afraid he was going to hide, take all this money he was supposedly hiding back with them, I guess. And as it turns out, you'll see why. <laughs> they didn't show up. So they, they don't show up. I emailed the clerk get my dad out of the hospital, take him to the family doctor. Since he almost dies, he agrees to detox yet again. And years ago, my dad had been a sponsor and very actively involved in AA and was a speaker. And I was actually the happiest he'd ever been. So I take him back to Florida, which, you know, I was a little reluctant because I'd only just started talking to him after years, six weeks earlier, but I knew he needed support in Florida. And this is when I meet the girlfriend. And this is when I meet the cleaning lady, friend on friend. And it just didn't feel so right. <laughs> just felt off. I just knew something was off with these people. And the age, and I realized that he was lonely and that, you know, he was befriending people that were not typical for the people that he would befriend and much younger than him because he was by himself, essentially, in Florida and he was lonely and he'd lost all his circle of friends with my mom and his divorce. But I didn't really trust them for some reason, and it just didn't feel right. And of course, I'd heard all these stories about these lavish expenditures that he'd made with the girlfriend. Anyways, so I'm in Florida, come back home, I help him detox. Well, I got to back the train up there because it's a really important part of the story. His friend, unquote friend, Tony is her name, about 300 pounds, built like a linebacker, solid girl, strong. I see her talking to my dad's through his iPad on Zoom or FaceTime or something for the first time in the hospital room when I had agreed to take him back home. And she had the same birthday as my dad, August 18th. So I took him to the hospital August 6th. So she was planning a birthday party for him in Florida. And they didn't show up for the court hearing, as I told you. So we decided to, I'm going to detox him and take him back home to Florida and be supportive for his support system there. So he told Tony to pick him up some Beck's beer. It was his favorite drinks that he used to drink when he was going to AA and religiously non-alcoholic, you know, really, really good for many years as a speaker and stayed clean and the happiest and he'd ever been and the calmest. So anyway, I watched him tell her to pick me up Beck's beer. So drove to the airport and took him to the doctor and did all that stuff and 
pack up and take him back home and drive from Orlando all the way down to where he was in Vero Beach, Florida, which is about an hour and 45 minute drive, only to walk in at 11 o'clock. And boy, oh boy, did Tony have a party going on really for her and her age demographic because she was in her 40s, male strippers. I mean, it was just obscene for my father, 70 at the time, who had just about died in the hospital and needed to detox. And the first thing she hands him is a glass of brandy. And it was all over my friends. His drinking was back on track, full force. And he was pretty upset about it the next day, actually, with her. And I was pissed. (laughs) And I'm down there and I can feel her trying to gain control over him and what I'm trying to accomplish with his being sober. And, you know, he's promised her he's leaving her his house and it's just something's just not right with this woman. So anyway, so come back home. We continue on that vein in that relationship. I I told you I'd been sick with lupus. I'd been schnookered out of a bunch of money. I'd started to sell all my income properties and the house that I owned and everything and all my furniture. I buy an RV. Fast forward into 2019. And the plan was I stayed in my RV actually for the summer of 2019 before this pandemic hit. And the plan was that I would start to build my coaching business back up as I was starting to get my health back and travel. And then I would make my way down to visit my dad for the winters in Florida. We'd rekindled our relationship. Sounded like a great plan. And my daughter was getting married that September and the RV site that I was spending the summer at was closing down September 30th. So I was going to make my way down after my daughter's wedding for October. I had, uh, you know, no place to stay other than to stay with my dad and we discussed it for months. And so that was the plan. And then all of a sudden I get this text from my dad that he no longer wants me to go down there. Tony had been over, same cleaning lady that my mom knew. She was their cleaning lady for years, friend. At the time, because they had had a hurricane and she, my dad had a hurricane room in his house. And so she's down there visiting and they're drinking and partying. And all of a sudden I'm being told, you know, a week before my daughter's wedding at the beginning of September, a month away from when I'm supposed to, I've got no place to live and I'm supposed to be arriving there, that he doesn't want me coming down for the winter. And you know, that spidey sense I talked about earlier, I knew something was off. And for those of you that do tarot and oracle cards, I so love tarot and oracle cards. And they kept getting this message that I was about to be thrown into the karmic fire, the family karmic fire, and it revolved around money. Yeah, not surprising. Since my mother loathed my father, they had a horrible marriage. He slept on the couch for their entire 50-year marriage. And she only found the courage to leave him when she found out he had dementia. And I'm not... Again, please, I do not support abuse. My dad abused all of us. And I have a lot of compassion and empathy for what she went through. He was not easy to live with. And I feel very badly for her. But you can't stay in a marriage because you like the lifestyle for just the money and then try to play the victim card when your cash cow king can no longer work. And then you want to take advantage of it. And all of a sudden you have the courage to leave. That's just, that's a whole different ball game, in my opinion. That's not somebody like the Gabby Petitos of the world who are suffering and emotionally don't have the courage to leave and are blaming themselves. And I've been in that state of mind, so I get it. There is nothing acceptable about abuse. But so there's different kinds of abuse, right? Right. Physical abuse, emotional abuse. There's abuse by being silent. 
There's manipulation. There's narcissism. There's all kinds of different abuses that take place. It doesn't have to just be physical and emotional. So I suffered a lot of abuse from my mom in very different ways. And she was angry that I was rekindling my relationship with my dad. Boy, oh boy. She always was jealous of that and couldn't understand why I was empathetic to him. And I, and I used to say and tell her over and over again, my mom to this day has never said that I recall she loved me. She's never once apologized for her behavior. She made me the scapegoat. And her and my sister sat on their beautiful little perches claiming innocence when they were so manipulative and mean and just downright nasty in the behind the scenes. And because my dad and I would get frustrated and verbalize against that, they'd make us out to be the bad people. But in actual fact, dad, my mom was very, very cruel in a lot of ways and very low on the compassion scale, as was my sister. And they only ever really used my dad for his money, to be frank and honest. So when I'm getting these tarot card messages that I'm about to get thrown into the karmic fire from this family that had outcasted me, scapegoated me and made me into being all the problems that they would refuse to deny were surely just as much their responsibility in that family unit. And the message to money was going to become an issue. Yeah, it wasn't surprising. So my spidey sense is telling me as I'm living in my daughter's basement now because I'm suddenly not traveling to Florida and the cards are telling me that I'm about to get thrown into the karmic fire. I know something's coming down the pipeline because I've done enough tarot readings over the years to know that the cards never lie. It's a whole other conversation, but they don't lie. And so boy, oh boy, they weren't kidding. So fast forward, rekindled my relationship. I'm now in the basement of my daughter's house. She's a newlywed. Oh, welcome home, mom. I'm sure that's the last thing she wanted is a newlywed. <laughs> it's me in the basement trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And it's my birthday, December 8th. This is 2019 now, just a few months later. And I applied to get a job because I'm now not traveling in my RV for the winter. Because if you know anything about RV life, you got to book these sites like way in advance to get a site. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll postpone my plans and we'll plan for next year and I'll get a job and build my coaching business out as I'm traveling. I'm still traveling. I'm still coaching real estate agents at this point. I'll build my coaching business out and um, I'll travel next year and I start to go to plan. I'm supposed to be training for this new job. And uh, it's my birthday, December 8, 2019. My daughters take me to this beautiful spa in Ardique in the mountains of the Gatineau Mountains, just outside the capital of Ottawa, where we live. And I'm relaxed. It's eight o'clock at night. And I turn my phone on and don't I get this text from Tony, my dad's quote unquote friend slash cleaning lady that used to clean for my mom and him when they were married for about 10 years that he's not in a good state. He's in the hospital and he needs money that he can't afford to pay for his prescriptions. So I say to her, it's my birthday, because don't forget, this is the man who sent me a text three months ago, well, four months ago in September, saying don't come for the winter now. Yeah, three months ago. Even though I knew that was something was off with that text and Tony was there, I just, you know, I hadn't talked to him. And I really didn't have a good feeling about her. So I tell her I'll call her back the next morning. It's my birthday and I'm going to enjoy the rest of the day. So I call her back the next morning and she failed to tell me that he almost died in the hospital. I found out after when they, I saw the piece of paper where they read him his last rites, to which she was the witness of. 
And she wants me to send money. And my spidey sense says, no, I'm going to drive down. So I call him to tell him what's going on, dad. He's back at home now. She's brought him back home from the hospital. He has pneumonia and urinary tract infection and almost died. And he doesn't have enough money for prescription. And this friend of his doesn't give him the five bucks to get a prescription. At this point, he's got Florida Blue Cross insurance. And I spent a year down there. And so I know it would have been about a $5 to get his prescription filled. And she doesn't lend him five bucks. He's got no food, probably suffered another gosh knows what kind of alcohol withdrawal. Because he's got no food, no money in the bank account, nothing. She can't swing a few bucks. She's got to ask me for it. And I followed my intuition again, said, Dad, I'm going to drive down. I'll be down in a few days. As I'm talking to him on the phone, Miss Tony calls the police and has him Baker acted against his will into the hospital. So now he's taken by the police. I'm on the phone with him. I'm listening to the whole story go down. I do tell the police he's not well and he's, you know, doesn't have prescriptions. And so I am concerned about his state of being, but I'm up in Canada and I don't know what's going on, but he's taken out of the house and taken to the hospital. I'm driving down, you know, less than a week later, probably about a week later, I'm driving down with my two dogs by myself in my Lexus through the mountains of New York in the winter. And I get a call from the hospital social worker that Tony had called asking if she could come remove his bank card from the hospital, his bank cards and his car keys. And that threw a red herring up for them. And I had said to her, yeah, there's a huge red herring. Where'd all this money go? Like to not be able to afford... This is my dad, a retired lawyer and land developer who was a multimillionaire. To not be able to afford his prescription and not have any food, this is a problem. Don't give her the bank cards. And they said, of course, we're not going to give her the bank cards. And then they proceed to call elderly services on her. So I drive two days with the dogs, straight, 24 hours, exhausted, to get to the house. And Miss Tony knows I'm coming. And the key that was supposed to be in the lockbox has been removed. The gate code has been changed to get into his gated community. I got no house keys. I have to break into the house. That's the start of the journey. And I see we're at 34 minutes. So hopefully next episode, I'm going to wrap up this story for you. And I'm going to wrap up the crazy journey that I've been on. And hopefully at the very least, you'll be entertained. And the why it's so important is because My dad has been defrauded of most of his money. And so as I'm the caregiver that his sole caregiver that now cares for him and helps pay his way, you know, the people that took advantage of him continue to run freely with what they did. And the police have told me this is a serious problem nowadays, as has the Alzheimer's Society and the Dementia Society have all told me that people with dementia... The elderly in general are defrauded daily by the people that are supposed to care for them. And so it's a significant part of what I'm going to fight towards because I promised my dad, I gave my dad my word, Scout's Honor, that I would fight to change the laws, to protect the elderly and the vulnerable sector of our society that is not currently protected by way of laws and who is not really very esteemed in the way that they should be. In a lot of cultures, a lot of societies, we actually hold our elderly up with a lot of regard, with a lot of respect for the wisdom that they hold. 
and not in this part of the world, my friends, and that needs to change. And so if you've listened to my story here today, thank you so much. If you're not interested in my story, fast forward to the episode four, because I'm sure I'm going to need one more episode to tell you my story, the crazy story that it is. And I apologize in advance to those that don't want to hear it. Like I said, fast forward. But for those that are interested about who I am and what I've been through and how I was so burnt out and exhausted and resentful and angry, keep listening for episode three, my friends. And until then, be well. Hey, thank you for listening to Caregivers Conversations today and for being a part of this amazing community where we laugh and sometimes cry together, but more importantly, where we aim to change the way we all experience caregiving through inspirational and uplifting stories and the provision of practical tips, tools, and techniques that you can add to your self-care toolkit If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. For any comments, questions, or special requests, reach out to me directly at leannejmckinley.com. And thanks for listening. Until next time, be well, my warrior friends.